Progress Not Perfection, and this episode is with Dan. Dan is 32 years sober. He is a chamberlain for the jail, some of the jail systems down in Tennessee. He is a pastor, um, and he got all that in sobriety. Um, he didn't think that he'd ever be able to do it, just like a lot of us, um, but you know, we do find our way. So after being in the army and years of rebelling and, you know, partying, you know, Dan found his way and he has a great story. He's got a book out now. Um, and he, we talk a lot about his book and it's a lot of, it's, the book is for people that are in prison and they're trying to, you know, be reformed basically. And, um, you know, it, I, I really, I enjoy talking to him a lot. You're going to find that we have a lot of things in common. Um, and we also have a lot of things that we, you know, we differ on. And that's completely fine because at the end of the day, the whole point is that we both agree on, you know, sobriety and being of service to other people. So he's of service as a pastor and a chamberlain, and I'm of service just by being open and being able to talk to people whenever they want to talk. So that's the most important thing. We both want to help people. We both want to use our shared experiences to help people. So you're going to get a lot of that from this interview. Um, don't forget, we're also sponsored by BetterHelp. So if you are still looking for a therapist and you can't get an appointment fast enough, please just go to betterhelp.com slash MJSPNPMCA. Um, when you type that discount code in, you get 10% off your first month. And you can get an appointment within 48 hours with a therapist. It's a lot better than waiting three or four months like they have you doing right now. But I want you to get right into the episode, enjoy this, and yeah, thanks for all the support so far. So, uh, man, yeah. nice to meet you. Where are you from? I'm from Pennsylvania right now. I'm originally from Jersey. Okay. I've lived all over the country. Awesome. Yeah. My um, son's, uh, next son's getting married in around Allentown in October. We're going to Pennsylvania, so. 45 minutes. Okay. Roughly. Yeah, we're, we're in Bloomsburg. We're about an, uh, 45 minutes an hour north, like that whole Allentown area. Yeah. And um, we're known for, like, the fair. We have a big fair here every year. That awesome. Kind of the town's claim to fame is their fair. Um, <laughs> a little bit about myself, so you know, like I'm I'm sober three years now. Awesome. Um, after a 10 year addiction with pills and a 20 year alcohol problem. Yeah. Um, I started drinking at 11 up until 31. So, you know, that was a partier. I was just a partier, and sure. then it stopped working, and then yeah. I turned to pills, and they worked, and they worked for a while. Yeah. And, you know, then I found AA. Luckily, I went into rehab and they introduced me to AA and that got me into the program. And I got back to Pennsylvania and they weren't accepting of my program, my recovery, you know, um, because I use cannabis in my recovery. And I'm very open about that. Right. I went to a rehab in L.A. that taught me how to use cannabis responsibly. Okay. And they were all gun ho about it in Cali. It's called Cali Sober. And as long as, like, I don't appear high, then they weren't caring. So I get to AA and PA and they're very conservative and they're like, yeah, we need you to say alcohol and not pills. I'm like, you want me to lie and say that I drove two hours for alcohol because I couldn't find any alcohol close by? That's what you want me to say? It's going to sound ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not living a truth. I want to live my truth. That's the whole right. point of being honest. Right. So eventually they told me to stop coming or stop talking. So you're not going to shut me up. So now I was like, I'll create my own. You know, and now we have a mental health thing and we accept everybody, whether you're on methadone, cannabis, whatever kind of program your recovery is, we're supporting it. We want to hear about it. Sure. 
So, and that's kind of where the podcast came out of. You know, we're not making money off the podcast, but I just like exactly. talking sobriety and putting some good stories out there of hope. Right. You know, so your, your name's David. Nice to meet you. I'm JD. Um, JD, yes, sir. Yep. And how much time do you have, like, sober? Yeah. Oh, uh, 32 years now. So I had my last drink and last drugs 32 years ago and uh, um, friended to preach, went to Bible college, pastor church, chaplain at the county jail. We run a men's home in, in-house uh, to help guys when they get out to put their life back together. And so I uh, wrote a book um, uh, called I'm Never Coming Back Here, which is uh, for guys that, uh, that um, are in jail. Every guy says when he leaves booking, I'm never coming back, but recidivism 70 plus percent and so it's um run at um 200 pages uh book and it's a course in in our jail and starting in other jails and so uh pretty committed to this you know it's faith-based program to be able to get help but uh uh, that's what we uh trying to do to help them and and with the addiction and the rest of our life too because as you know once the addiction comes some of the other issues come with relationships and finances and job and you know and all that and so by the time i get them coming out of jail you know, they need every piece of their life put back together. So that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, you're basically spiritually broken and you're physically broken a lot of times too by the time you end up in an institution or, yep. you know, jails, institutions, death. That's what they say, you know. Okay. And it's no joke. And it's not getting better anytime soon, you know, especially with fentanyl. I have a sponsee that, you know, his drug of choice was meth, you know, and he identifies as an alcoholic because that's he knows that's where it started. And he got the Vivitrol shot. And I reminded him the other day, you know, I'm using my manipulation for good now and not evil like I used to. And I said to him, you know, it's interesting because, like, you had the Vivitrol shot and people that get that usually turn to meth because it doesn't affect Vivitrol. And now you have that shot. I was, And he was like, oh, yeah. Like, it kind of, like, hit it. And I was like, but wait, they put fentanyl in meth now, don't they? He was like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, so it will hit you because it's an opiate and it will make you really sick if you tried meth again. He was like, I didn't even think of that. You know, so like now I'm like putting those little like I use my manipulation for good now yep. and not evil. <laughs> if I'm not self-serving when I'm manipulating, I feel that's what my therapist said. Right. Because as long as you're not self-serving when you're manipulating and you're helping somebody else to see something, that's OK. Just yeah. Don't be self-serving about it. I said, OK. <laughs> So and tell me about yourself. What did you, when did you get into, like, tell me about your addiction years first. Yeah. So I grew up in a good home, a uh, good mom, good dad, um, worked hard, went to church. Um, but uh, we moved from Tennessee to Iowa when I was in sixth grade in the middle of the year. And I talked Southern and dress country. And uh, um, I got in six or seven fights the first week and wasn't very accepted. And so next year was junior high, new school, a whole bunch of new kids. I'm like, you know what? I want to fit in. And so it started off with little things. I mean, it just curse words. And then it went to, oh, I don't know any of the world's music, so I need to catch up with that. And then that pleasure, that desire to please and be accepted in the crowd led to the next thing, which was alcohol, which led to the next thing, which was drugs. And so the alcohol for um, me was I would get caught and then my dad was going to ground me. And so I said, I'm not going to be grounded. So I moved out. So in high school, I moved out of the house, had a job, had a car, got an apartment with a friend. And uh, I said, I was never going to use drugs you know drinking what's the big deal they're never going to use drugs and i knew my roommate used drugs i said just don't do it in the house he said no problem and so um then i found out he was uh he was using smoking weed inside of his um pipe but it was apple smoke on top of it tobacco so you couldn't smell it i don't smell it 
And then the next step was, hey, man, so now we're getting high every day. So everyone's bringing all their drugs over to our place every day because not many guys in high school have their own apartment. And so never had to buy it because it was just the place to be. So that was during the day. All the guys came over and brought their drugs, weed, acid, whatever they were hitting on. And then uh, the evening, all the girls came and the kegs and the beer and, and then all that stuff. And so that was every day for a while. And uh, I'd already signed up to go into the Army. And so um, when I went in the Army, I was hot for everything. And they didn't drug test you coming in, uh, but they would later on. So I had to get clean for a while. So then it just went to alcohol. So it was every night, passed out. Korea, they had this stupid drink called soju that I uh, was in Korea for a year. And uh, really cheap. I mean, less than a dollar and two bucks, you're drunk. And uh, yeah. they said it had formaldehyde in it. And um, it had something. Because, boy, it would mess you up so bad. And then in the morning, it was the worst hangovers ever, but it was a cheap drunk. And so that's what you do. And so literally every night, um, we're just passing out drunk and finally realized, you know, this isn't good. So uh, we stopped for a while and just started exercising and doing sports and replaced it with that. And it was okay. And so then I thought, okay, see, I'm not an alcoholic, so I can keep drinking. So you go back to it. Um, And so, uh, you know, whatever people's definition of quote that alcohol is, I knew it wasn't good for me. It was causing problems. And uh, uh, when my friend and I would drink, people say, oh, there's a bacon. uh, Last name's Baker. So they call me bake. Here's bacon slots is going to patch slots hour and uh they're drinking sure enough they'll be fighting before the night we were best friends but before the end of the night we would be fighting yeah. and um the worst thing ever just on alcohol i was talking to a friend of mine in the army and he was from detroit from a gang and um he got into the army to get out because it was hot where he was at and he never told us the whole story i think he was in trouble and he uh he he ran to the army to get away from that but uh, just stupid thoughts when you're drinking. You know, I've never killed anybody. I wonder what that's like. Oh, man, it's pretty cool. You know, I'd like to kill somebody. Hey, let's. we planned to kill this sergeant. I mean, sergeant we didn't like. And so we had four guys. This guy was going to bring him over to our uh, to our room. Another guy was going to hit the light. And another guy was going to put a blanket on him. And I was going to kill him. And um, and it was, it was a set and happening. And so when the sergeant walked in the room, the guy that was supposed to turn the light off didn't. And he's just looking at him. And so the sergeant's looking at him. And somebody's holding the blanket. And I'm over there goes, what's going on? And he turned around and walked out. And it's like, oh, man, you're stupid. Why didn't you turn the light off? And literally, I've been in Fort Leavenworth for the rest of my life for something so stupid. Stupid, you know, and it's amazing what we do under the influence that we would have never, ever, ever done sober. And um, and so um, then uh, started getting back close to God. I want to find a nice girl to date. So where well, do you find? You actually, yeah, you just reminded me too, because like you know, we all have those thoughts, even in sobriety. You can't help the first thought that comes to your mind. Yeah. The problem is when you act on that first thought. We all, you know, our subconscious will tell us ridiculous things, even in sobriety, because it just it's like that. We're curious people. And, you know, there are some strange things, I'm sure, that pop in both of our minds randomly. And we're like, whoa, where did that come from? (laughs) But the thing is, when you're using and drinking, you do follow through with those, you know, crazy thoughts that pop in your mind and you explore them more. At least when you're sober, you're like, oh, that was weird. And you move on, (laughs) you know. So and it's, it's just funny. Yeah. And it, when we say it's under the influence and uh, to get a little bit, maybe not too weird, but under the influence of what? Uh, the old fashioned word for alcohol is spirits. Um, the Greek word for drugs is pharmakia, 
which in the Bible word is sorcery. And so when you are under the influence, what are the under the influence of? You know, things are going to mess you up. And um, and so I, I wanted to find a nice girl to date. So where do you find a nice girl? At church. I started going back to church and uh, preacher made me mad. It preached against me. I said, I'm never coming back. Wouldn't shake his hand on the way out. But something on the inside said, man, that's good. You need that. So I started coming back, changing little by little. Then I felt like I was supposed to be a preacher. Like, oh, no, no way. Who wants to do that? What a boring, miserable life that would be. So uh, quit church, went to the beach for the weekend, and uh, we were partying. And God said, no, you're not. And he put me in jail for the night. I mean, I'm sitting in jail. What am I doing? David Baker in jail. You sober up real quick when they slam that door behind you. Yes, you do. And so, uh, so they let me out at eight o'clock uh, the next morning. And uh, back then, it was just pay a fine and go for a DUI. And so, um, so went back home, took a shower, changed clothes, went to church, <laughs> came back. And um, but still, I'm not going to be a preacher. What a bore! I'm, I'm going to be a military attorney. Army's paying for college and law school, come back in as an officer, retire at 38, set up a law practice. My life is set. Um, who wants to be a preacher? But uh, went through another. My friends were all home from college. I was home from the Army. We all have legal IDs now. We're going to party. And so when we had it set up, when, where, we all met. And I remember about an hour of the night. And um, I don't remember anything else. I woke up somewhere I wasn't supposed to be, done a whole bunch of things I wasn't supposed to do. And I said, really? This is it? This is why I'm not trying to do what God wants me to do because of this is empty. It's it's a waste. What is it? So finally I said, okay, God, if that's what you want me to do, I'll do it. And the next weekend for me, that was it. Uh, never touched a drop of alcohol in 32 years. I haven't touched any drugs in 32 years. Um, didn't touch another woman until I got married um, because I said, I'm surrendered. I'm done. And so for 32 years, no alcohol, no drugs, uh, none of that. And man, what a great life. And, and to be honest, J.D., it was crazy because two weeks later, two weeks later, I woke up and said, man, I'm happy. This is weird. Man, I haven't got high. I haven't got laid. Um, I haven't got drunk. I haven't partied. How can I be happy? And so I got out a Bible and I looked up the concordance of all the things it said would make a person happy. Happy is a man that does this. Happy is a man that does that. And I wrote down all those things and crazy. It's about 10 different things. And for the last two weeks, I had been doing every one of those. And wow. And what do we want? Why do we get high? Why do we drink? Why do we do drugs? Why do we party? Because we want to have fun. We want to be happy. And so that does bring happiness. I think one of the worst things as parents that we do is tell our kids, oh, don't do that. That's not fun. And then we try and we go, it sure is fun. Yeah. Uh, but God talks about there's pleasure in sin, but for a season, you know, how long does a season last? Alcohol works for a while, but then I need to go up to this. And that works for a while. Then I need to go up to this. And that works for a while. Then I need to go up to this. And, and our life's destroyed. There's pleasure and sin for a season. And after the pleasure comes, now the consequences. And, you know, where that buzz would last for a few hours, the consequences is a DUI that literally to this day, when I renew my license, I have to go back and prove I paid the stupid thing. This much pleasure, this many consequences, you know? And so a guy is in meth and, all right, having a good time. And uh, now he's uh, in jail for something that he did. And so, you know, this much pleasure, 1129, 11 months, 29 days in jail for that, uh, the consequences are way more. And what I found was Psalm 1611 said, God has pleasures at his right hand forevermore. And so the choice of, do I want the pleasures of sin for a season, then all the consequences that come with it, or would I give God a chance to see what kind of pleasure God can give without any consequences? Mm -hmm. 
man, that's a simple logical choice. I'll choose the pleasure of God without the consequences. And so for 32 years living that way, trying to help people, it's been amazing. Well, we moved to Tennessee uh, to start a church 27 years ago, and there's a county jail here. I just prayed one simple prayer. God, I'd sure love to go to the jail and help some guys. And uh, next thing you know, I met a guy who goes to jail every week and invited me to come with him. Just open doors. So every week for 27 plus years, I've gone to the jail to try to help guys. And as a volunteer, you get one hour a week to talk to one group. And there's so many more people to help and so much more you want to do. I've said I could live at the jail or at the hospital or at the courthouse. Those are the three places where people are just hurting horribly. Add to that uh, under the bridge and places like that. So um, what happened, I started going as a volunteer, and I thought, boy, there's so much more I want to help guys with. And so um, I thought, you know, I could write a book, then I could leave it with them, and then they would have a lot more. And so um, I asked the guys when I'd go in there, I said, guys, I'm going to let you pick the title of my book. Like, what? You're going to let us pick the title? Yes. What did you say when you left booking for the first time? You're getting out of jail. You're getting your property. You're leaving booking. You're done. What did you say? And like in unison, the 20 guys say, I'm never coming back here. <laughs> now, uh, when, where are you at when you're saying this? You're back in jail. So yeah, just yeah. saying I'm never coming back is not going to help, but we got to do something different. And so that's the title of the book. I'm never coming back here. It's a couple hundred pages. And, um, and so what was really neat, I got the book done. Uh, we started giving it out at the jail. The sheriff read it and asked if I'd be the chaplain at the jail. And, uh, and so I was working uh, pastor in a church and chaplain for a health company and uh, making decent money, uh, 75 a year as a chaplain for the uh, uh, health company. And so then they asked me to be the chaplain at the jail. I don't know what the salary was, but I knew it wasn't that. But I really felt like that's what God wanted me to do. So I went from 75 a year to 22 a year um, helping guys in jail. But it's amazing how God blessed and took care of us. After that, we got a new house. We have 11 children, by the way. Uh, yes, okay. wow. I, I say that often, especially when the bills come I, in. I have one, and I'm like... <laughs> yeah, we have we have 11 and uh it's awesome love it wouldn't trade it for the world my wife's number eight of 14 she wanted at least eight and god gave us 11 but um but what are, their ages? What are the ranges uh oldest is uh, 30 youngest is 12 and um so i'm full-time chaplain on the inside helping the guys with the book and we go to a narcan class a guy was teaching about narcan and uh, certifying how to use it and giving it to us and and i talked to him after really great guy really sharp and i said what's your background um and he works for the state teaching narcan classes he said criminal and i said so criminal justice or criminal no he said no i was criminal <laughs> <laughs> you, got it. you picked it up. And um, I didn't get it first because, you know, we judge people by the way they look. We shouldn't, but people do. And so you know, he didn't look like, you know, a criminal. And so um, I gave him a copy of the book. He read it and he came back and said, this is it. He said, this is it. He said, we need to get this in every jail in the state. He said, if you turn this into a course, I'll help you get it in every jail in the state. And so I just got the second printing done. It's a course now. It's a 12-week course. It's divided up by 12 weeks, certain chapters and homework all inside the book. And so we're teaching that in our jail uh, to a men's group and to a ladies group and then uh, looking to expand it in jails all over the country. It's a self-study where someone can just take the book and go through it themselves, or you can have a facilitator to come in and teach those classes and lessons, and even have videos that I've done if they wanted to play a video of me teaching those lessons to be able to help them. And so um, 
so it's been amazing to see what's uh, what's done and boy to love it and to be able to help guys because as you know you live in this world and to see what people go through and and how the outside world judges them when they don't know what they're going through and what they're starting I did a survey for guys in the jail and asked them hey when did you first use what did you use how old were you who are you with things like that and just floored I mean just floored nine years old my mom gave me my first weed and then that went from this to this to this you know uh, she was eight you know and I know two people that were eight and and this trauma based too a lot of it when you dig down deep and you say well what did anything happen around that time and they you know they'll think and they won't even realize a lot of the times that it was trauma that that had a cause at a young age that caused them to like want to like lash out and start drinking and be okay with it you know it's funny because i i've surveyed a bunch of guys that way because that's the typical that's that's the term in the society, in the addiction society. You know, it's trauma and the jail. And um, I've asked hundreds of guys, and and a lot of them have been offended by it. They're like, no, I had a good mom, a good dad. I wouldn't beat. I would abuse. Nobody sexually abused. I like getting high. It was fun. Uh, and that's why I did it. And so um, I don't know if my guys I talk to are not typical, but it's, um, but it's amazing. And you get down deep and some have, and we've had been able to help them. Uh, a lot of guys have been messed with and been abused and been hurt and, and, and things. This one guy for sure, I was talking to him and, and so what happened first time used. And he said, I was with my dad. We, uh, and my mom, we drove to Kentucky. So my mom could abort my brother and my dad and I sat in the car and smoked crack. Like, okay. Wow. You know, 11 years old, your mom's killing your little brother and you're smoking crack with your dad in the car. You think that's going to hurt somebody. You think that's going to have a problem. And people who don't understand this world need to be not so judgmental and understand where these people are coming from. Yes, it's a choice. Yes, you can change. Yes, you can do that. But to understand where some of these guys are coming from and what they're dealing with, and especially when that gets a hold of you and that addiction is so strong where that's all you think about. And it's your your priority. It's your love. Absolutely. It's when to get that next hit, when to score again, when uh, everything about life is is that way. Uh, not even about when am I going to eat or when am I going to sleep. No thought about that is when am I going to score next. I don't want to come down out of this. And the Narcan we talked about, and then I'm sure your community is familiar with, but if somebody here is not, um, when someone's overdosing on an opiate, then they're, they're so stimulated, um, their body shuts down and they don't breathe. And they die. And so when you hit them with the Narcan and they breathe that in, it immediately sends them into detox, immediate from this super high of meth or fentanyl, sorry, of uh, opiates or uh, fentanyl or um, heroin down to crazy withdrawals, immediate withdrawals. I've had guys tell me, look, man, when I'm getting high, if IOD, do not Narcan, do not hit me with that. I'd rather go and be done than to come out of it in that uh, withdrawal that's so painful. That's that's what people are dealing with. They'll do anything not to come down, uh, you know, from that because they know how they're going to feel. And and, and yeah. if you've never been there, no experienced that, you don't fentanyl, even understand yeah. it. Fentanyl is not a joke. Like what they're doing nowadays. Like I I was into pills. I was in like the oxy thirties, you know, like oxycodone, and that's what I I always told myself the entire time. As long as you don't do heroin, then you're going to be in control of this. Yeah. You know, and I was a functioning act. I had a good job. You know, I was always at work. You know, then I would leave work to get high. I was driving two hours to get pills, you know, and then come back. I was sitting in Philly traffic every day in two-hour drive to go get pills and then drive back to Amish country in PA. And that was four days a week, easy. And that, you know, it's an insanity, but it's what I wanted to do. It's how I wanted to spend my time. I would do anything to get it. 
Yep. And um, when I, I got sober 2018 and I hadn't touched, you know, opiates, and then I had a, my gallbladder removed last month or in June. And I told them over and over, I'm in recovery. Don't don't give me anything. And, of course, I wake up, and I knew it right away, and I said, I'm high. And they said, no, you have anesthesia, the nurse. I said, no, this isn't anesthesia. And the doctor came in. He goes, oh, you know what? We had to hit you a couple times with fentanyl and once with the laudic because you looked uncomfortable. I was like, you don't understand what's going to happen in my body right now. They're like, we gave it to you, so it's okay. I'm like, that is not what it's about. I'm going to go into withdrawals. I, I haven't had this in three years. I'm, this is going to be really bad for me. They said, nah, nah, you'll be fine. We knew how to administer it. You're going to be okay. And it's an outpatient procedure because it's gallbladder. It's a lapro or whatever. So as soon as I get in the parking lot, I'm already vomiting. As soon as I get in the parking lot, two hours later. I, that continued for 18 hours. I was nonstop throwing up bile and getting sick. Like, I called my 85-year-old grandma. I'm like, how was your surgery when you had your gallbladder? Because I was fine. I was good to go a half an hour later. I was like, okay, then, yep, I'm in withdrawals. Like, I was severely with four incisions in my stomach because I had a hernia, That's too. horrible. I was holding like a pillow to my stomach so the incisions wouldn't open as I was vomiting for 18 hours. And when I called them, they're like, yeah, your body shouldn't have reacted that way. I said, I know. That's why I specifically told you not to give me those things because I knew my body would react. You don't think I know what withdrawal is like? You don't think I know what sends me into withdrawals after nine and a half years of being addicted? Like, you don't listen. <laughs> you don't listen. It is amazing. It's amazing how... Some of them know, but they don't care. Uh, I've got a good RN friend and uh, emergency room RN for 30 years, and uh, he had surgery. And um, and so he said afterwards, you know, trying to give him all these Lortabs and Percocets. He goes, nope, nope, nope. And uh, he said, just um, just give me um, Tylenol. No, no, no. You had surgery. You were cut on. You've got to have this. No, I don't. And talk to a doctor friend, the same thing. They had surgery. They would not take the narcotics because they know how bad it is. So they went through surgery, would not take any of that. I would rather numb the pain a little bit with the Tylenol, live with the physical pain for a couple of days, than live with the months or years long pain that addiction brings. And, and it's amazing. Yeah. Doctors and, I, and nurses know that. Then why in the world are they giving it to people? My dad. Because they're getting paid on it. Exactly. You know, because like they don't want to give me cannabis. And I, and I tell them, oh, cannabis will help me with my pain when I get home. Oh, we can't recommend that. I said, don't worry. I know plenty of doctors that have, and that's why I have a medical card, and yeah. I use it responsibly. I was like, I know how to use it for pain and not even euphoria. Like, it's medicine. And they're like, yeah, well, we're not going to recommend it. I said, we're going to recommend tramadol. I said, yeah, that's a, a painkiller that you guys get paid on when I fill the script at the pharmacy. You make money every time I go to the pharmacy and fill a script. You're upset because I'm filling this script from another doctor that's for cannabis, and you're not getting paid for that script. And that's the only reason why you won't recommend it. They were trying to push morphine on me and Xanax on me the last summer when I was having all my problems. We didn't know it was my gallbladder wow. yet. They thought it might have been um, a, um, a tumor in my yeah. you know adrenal gland. And my blood pressure was going up like 180 over 120. Um, my heart rate was going up to 190. When I would just be watching TV in the air conditioning, wow. it shouldn't have been like that. Wow. So I was in the ER on the 4th of July last year. Like, all right, we're going to give you morphine for the pain and Xanax for the anxiety. I said, the hell you are. I said, do you look at my records? I was in rehab two years ago for painkillers and benzos. You cannot give me. No, but we're giving it to you. So it's going to be fine. Like, you guys gave it to me before and it wasn't fine. 
You yeah. don't understand what goes on in my mind and the sensation of craving. Once you get it, that's all you want. You don't understand. And so they're like, well, we're going to write you the scripts. I said, okay. And they handed it to me, wrote them yeah. up and left them on my bed. You Absolutely. Know? And it's so great you can do that because so many people don't. I mean, you know, especially when it comes from the doctor that it's okay. The doctor prescribed it and they know what they're doing. They know what it's, it's got harder. Still in that addiction. And I can justify it because my doctor's given it to me. And it is, it is, it is a mess. You're right. And God said the love of money is the root of all evil. And it is evil what they're doing to people. My dad, literally, okay, if you can believe, believe this, my dad's never, never smoked a cigarette never had a drop of alcohol his whole life. Um, and uh, first time he ever saw alcohol, he was in the army and the guys got a day pass and they came back drunk and falling all over the place. And this guy was getting ready to get sick and back in the World War II barracks types and open bay and they had smoke in there and they had the cigarette butt, uh, coffee can nailed to one of the beams at the center. Yeah. And so the guy is getting ready to get sick. So he's putting his head up to get sick into the coffee can. Uh, well, it's jagged on the edges. So it's cutting his fingers. So it's bleeding. And then he just gets his head over and then the coffee can comes down because it's not going to hold his weight, obviously. So the cigarette and butts and ashes going all over him. And then he vomited. So he's laying in the floor in his own vomit, bloody uh, with cigarette ashes all over him. My dad said, you know, if that's what alcohol does, I don't think I need it. And so my, my dad's never touched a drop of alcohol, not one ever. We won't take Thailand. We won't take NyQuil. Literally, my dad will not take NyQuil. That's how far. <laughs> but yeah. he had health issues and the doctors got him addicted to all these pain medicine and he was addicted to them. This is my dad, Deacon Dad, never drank, never did drugs, never. He and mom were both pure the, the day they got married. And that's my dad now is addicted to opiates because he's not now. He got off of it. But it's just like, why in the world did you do that to my dad? And my dad's trusting the doctor. The doctor says, take this. He takes it. He takes it exactly the way the doctor tells him to take it. And then he's addicted to opiates. So And you're physically, right. just like that, you are within not even the full script. By the end of that script, you're physically addicted. That's 28 days, you know, because usually it's the scripts are 28 days or 30 yeah. days, but usually 28, you could film again because I was always trying to film my scripts as early as possible. Yeah. Some pharmacists do 27 days. And, you know, that, that was the problem is they're gone. And then you just, you need more yeah. and you feel like you need more. And then all of a sudden you say, wait, why do I need more? And I'm not even in pain anymore, but yeah. your mind is telling you, no, 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 this is your quality of life now. Yeah, you need this. Like when I first did pills, like I did pills in high school here and there when I was partying and drinking, but it was like it was the it was the icing on the cake. You know, sure. it was never the thing. Right. And then when I was 22 and I was tired of drinking because I went so hard at 21 for an entire year, I you know was looking for something new. I I got into acid. I I still I think acid can be and mushrooms can be medically useful if you use them right. Um, but I don't, I don't even try because, you know, I'm still, you know, yeah. early on, right. but you know, I got into that and the psychedelics and I was like, yeah, I can't function with this. I need to be able to function. And then like a month later, I was not going to the bar cause I didn't feel like it. And my buddy was, I had the apartment like you had, I, I moved out of 20 yeah. and I wasn't going to college. So all my friends who still lived at home and were going to college, they went somewhere to party. Yeah. And so everyone brought their things to me. Everyone was trying to just escape being home by hanging out of my apartment. Yeah. So, of course, I had a lot of people there that were selling things and doing things. And, you know, the guy's like, I'm hitting the bar. I got a bag of Perk 10s, you know, 10 bucks a piece if you want to. 
And I'm like, yeah, I'll take two. And I had never been as high as that night. I don't know what it was about that night, the recliner, the movie, the weather, the fall, October. Everything just converged perfectly. And I just, I said to myself, I want and need this every single day. You know, and I was off. Within a month, I knew I was addicted. And I came to terms, like I had a conversation with myself. Like, all right, you need this every day. You love this every day. You want this every day. But you're in control of it. Yeah. Do not do heroin because you're you're going to lose control. At least with this, you are in control. And that conversation tricked me for nine and a half years. You know, wow. where I really thought I was in control of everything. And you know, you're the you're the director of your play. You're the star yeah. of the play. You're the yeah. producer of the play. Did you go to AA at all? No. No. They talk about the producer and director a lot over there. Um, And it is. You're running your life. You know, you're in charge of it. And as long as your quote can function, you can you can tell yourself that's okay. We had a guy that um, good guy. I've worked with him for 30 years. No exaggeration. I met him before he even started at the jail and he'd been out of jail 30, 40, 50 times. Talented guy. Great guy. But just keeps going back. But like you, he, he never would do heroin because he knows guys. They, you know, and we well, see so many people OD now. And so uh, he messed up, went back and used meth. Well, they laced it with some fentanyl and he's out and he's done. And uh, they they were able to get him back. Uh, but he was in the hospital and man, it scared him to death. Uh, he's been clean since then. And that's been a few months. And for him, that's incredible. And totally different mindset and outlook now. And you hate that you have to go through that. But yeah, you, we think we're in control. But in a drug world, you have no idea you're not in control. You don't know what you're, you're doing or what you're getting or what it's going to do or what it's going to mix with. You have no idea. I've actually been afraid to almost go back to pills because so like I got sober in April 2018, July 2018, Demi Lovato, um, the famous singer, she overdosed from my pills because they were putting fentanyl in it. Mac Miller, a famous singer, a month later died from the same thing with fentanyl pressed pills to make it look like oxycodone. So uh, now I'm getting out of rehab. I'm like, oh, man, everyone is you like pressing those fentanyl and then make it look like pills. Like, I don't know what I'm going to be getting. And I, I could die on the yeah. first shot. Yeah. And a friend of mine, that's what happened. We both got sober at the same time. He went to Florida for rehab. I went to California. We both came back around um, the fall and on his relapse, that had fentanyl in it and he died on his relapse. Wow. And you know, we were neighbors for 12 years, Man. very good friends. He was the most intelligent when I say intelligent, I mean his grades weren't straight A's, but if he would have applied himself, he would oh, have had straight A's. The most yeah, intelligent brilliant. person yeah. I've ever met in my entire life. He always reminded me of Quentin Tarantino, the way he talked. And mm-hmm. I always loved having conversations and long conversations. We talked so much in sobriety on the phone from California to Florida, and it broke my heart when it happened. And I'm, you know, I'm at his funeral now, and I'm in Jersey around my old stomping grounds, and I'm with somebody that I, I kind of felt like I knew that he always had pills on him because he's had really bad health problems since he was born. Mm-hmm. And he is legitimately prescribed these pills from his family doctor. It's no like fake thing, but he does take them too fast and he runs out and then he's on bedridden for a couple of weeks till he gets more. So I know if he's out and about, he's got him in his pocket. We've been best friends for a long time. But I sat there with him around a fire and I didn't even think to ask him. Like, yeah. didn't he, I knew, number one, he would say no because we're best friends. Good. But number two, like, the last thing my friend would want, the one that died, is for me to be getting high after his funeral, after watching him in a, in a cast. Yeah. And that's what I kept telling myself. Like, you know, he died so I can live. 
you know, he died to teach me a lesson that this isn't a joke. This is what happens when you relapse. You know, we both got sober. We're both three weeks apart in age. You know, we graduated together. We did everything together. My first time smoking weed when I was like a kid was with him. You know yeah. what I mean? We did a lot together growing up. And we, when his dad committed suicide, I was there for him. In eighth grade. Like eighth oh. grade, his dad pulled a car around the corner of the block, put the hose in the tailpipe and ended his life right around the corner from his house, both of our houses. You know, and it actually was August. It's, um, yeah, it's coming up on an anniversary of it. And it's crazy to think about the stuff that we go through as kids that, you know, we try to mask. You know, I, I, I know somebody that walked in and found his dad with a gun in his hand and already dead and already did it. He came in from school with a friend. You know, imagine walking in from school with your buddy and then finding your dad. Wow. Like, and he was also turned in addiction, but now he's been sober six years and he's doing great. That's um, so, I mean, but all that trauma that we grow up and we see, and it's, it's not a surprise, especially I grew up right outside of Camden, New Jersey. You know, it was very easy at that port yeah. in Philly and Camden right there. All the drugs were coming right there and yeah. they were coming fresh and not cut. You know what I mean? So anybody that wanted drugs, you were going into Philly or Camden and easily scoring. Yeah. Like literally three miles outside of Camden is where, <laughs> you know, I grew it's up. Funny cause when we, uh, my dad worked for a DuPont company and when I was a kid, uh, they closed the, the place down and uh, dad was supervision. They offered him one transfer and if he didn't take it, he wouldn't have a job at DuPont and they offered him Newark, New Jersey. And he said, I'm not taking it. And said, no, no, you don't have a choice. You're, you'll lose your job. I'm not taking it. I've been there on business trips. I'm not moving my family to Newark, New Jersey. He was willing to give up the whole thing not to take his family there. And so uh, ended up they offered him Fort Madison, Iowa, and we moved there instead. Um, but ever since then, I've heard Newark, New Jersey, and you know, you just the, the mindset, and it's been typical of of um, what, what year it was, was that? back then. That was uh, 70, uh, 78, 1978. Okay. There's a movie coming out this fall. It's called The Saints of Newark. Mm. And it's a prequel to Sopranos. Sopranos. And wow. it takes place um, around, I think, the late 60s in Newark, when a lot of things that you would have been talking about yeah. would have been in the news about all the riots that were happening in Newark. I mean, Newark yeah. was crazy in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not surprised that your dad was like, no, nah, I don't, I don't want to go there. Like. Doing that. So, yeah, I wonder wonder what my life would have been if we'd ended up there. So, and you're right. Boy, it is so sad. I mean, drugs have just taken too many lives. I'm just the guys that I've dealt with just since I've been chaplain at the jail. It's amazing. I mean, almost every month, sometimes two or three months, OD, OD, you hear who did it, you know, and it, it just, it goes through the, you know, crowd and what happened and what well, doesn't have to be that way. And, you know, get help, get, get with people who are being successful and, and just, you don't give up. The Bible says a just man falls seven times yet rises again. And I tell guys all the time, guys, I will never give up on you. As long as your heart's still beating and there's air in your lungs, you know, you can call me and I'm not going to put you down. I'm not going to beat you up. I'm going to take you out for a meal and say, all right, how can we help? Where are you at? What can I do for you? And, uh, and try to help people. Do not give up because uh, um, the guys that do, it's just, it's over for them. And, and it's great to see people recover have a great life. And now the best thing of it is so many of them like you, like me, we use our life now to help other people yeah. out of that, which is great because so many people don't. So many people hear them, it's their own fault and they should they know better and there's the felon and they're this. Okay, so what? Now what I we got into a help? meaningless argument on Facebook the other night because a news article was about a 18 year old who got arrested for she was pregnant and she was high on heroin in her car and passed out. 
and which is a terrible thing to do. And I don't, you know, condone what she's doing, but I can understand the mindset also at the same time as an addict. And the first comment underneath was some people don't deserve to live, put her down. I'm like, everyone can be saved if they want to be. What are you talking about? Don't put her down. Have her come in and see me. Like I talk a lot about needs and wants, you know what I mean? Like we need air to breathe. We need, you know, water, but like, for being sober, whenever someone says, oh, I need to be sober, you always ask why, because it's always for somebody else. Whenever they say they need to be sober, it's for jail. It's for the cops. It's for the family. It's for the kids. It's for somebody else, and it doesn't work. But when somebody comes in and says to you, like, hey, chaplain, like, I want to be sober, yeah, they, they say that with conviction, and yeah. that is what helps them stay sober. Yeah. It's that kind of mentality. I agree. It. I tell them all the time, guys, if you're only doing this to not come back to jail, you will come back to jail. There's got to be a higher purpose and a plan in your life than just that, or it's not going to do it. Um, you know, and in the Bible, the prodigal had hit bottom and he was in want and finally realized, you know what? It's way better being a servant at my dad's than living out here in the world and being willing to humble ourselves and to go to somebody who can help us. And it's hard to do. Um, you know, we're, like you said, you're the orchestrator, you're the producer. We, we want to run our own life. We all want to do that. And when you realize I need help, um, and, uh, we don't like it, but get the help. The hard thing is asking for help and being afraid that someone's going to react the way that that guy reacted up. Nah, just you can be, you can just die. Yeah. We're not going to help you because you can't be saved. And that's like the biggest fear that addicts have a lot of times is what right. if I reach out for help and I get told no? Rejected. It's, yeah. It's and big. then that ten more years before they ask for help yeah. again. Just and like it that. is a tough thing. I'm I'm writing now a new book and it's called Help My Loved Ones Incarcerated or Help My Loved Ones in Jail. Um, because how do the loved ones, how do they know how to help? Because so many times they enable um, and they're not helping them and they're codependent with them and they're feeding that addiction instead of getting them help for that. And it's hard to know. I love my kid. Am I helping him or am I hurting him? What do I, what do I do? And it, it it's a tough line. And so many times you see families, you know, that are enable and helping them to be able to use instead of, I love you no matter what, I'll help you no matter what, but you have to be wanting help, not me just feeding your addiction because I'm not helping you that way. I am actually hurting you. I am, I am facilitating and helping you stay addicted and that, and you don't need that. So the balance of that, so many times by the time I get with the guys, their family's done with them. They don't want anything to do with them. And that's part of what we do is we, we rebuild back that relationship and what a blessing it is to let them, their life be changed. And then we reach out to the family and the family says, wow, this is real. You are different. Um, when I surrendered and got rid of all that stuff, I mean, I went from one weekend to everything to the next weekend to nothing. And, uh, I just moved back home before I went to college, just got out of the army. So I was supposed to be home. I was supposed to be in church with my family. And man, I just blow it. And, um, and my dad didn't jump on me and he didn't, when the old, the way they used to be, he, he was hurt, but I could tell he loved me and, uh, he didn't put up a wall toward them. And so then I could surrender and go to them for help afterwards because I knew they weren't going to be judgmental and put me down. They truly, sincerely wanted to help me. And there, there's a difference there. The judgment. And that, and that was your rock bottom too. Yeah, you know, that's that's I always say that I always hear and I'm sure you do, too. Oh, my rock bottom was getting arrested. You know, my rock bottom is being in jail. It's like, no, your rock bottom is the day that you surrender to a higher power. And you're like, or, or surrender to anybody and just say, how do I get out of this? Yeah. How do I change my life? How do I live differently? That is the rock bottom, because yeah. 
The other ones are just speed bumps to the bottom. The bottom means you can't go down anymore, and mm-hmm. you're starting to crawl back out again. So to me, Problem surrendering is, is your rock bottom. Yeah. And, and the problem is, you're right. We look at people and go, wow, that's not bottom yet for them. And for them, it's not. They've got basements in their house and it just keeps on going down. And the sad thing in the bottom, God says, sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So many people's bottom is death. And that's where it's going to end at unless they get some help and things that we look at and go, okay, man, if I was going through that, that would be bottom for me. But for so many people, it's not what they can take and keep on going into that. It's just, it's just amazing to look at your life. You've lost your kids. You've lost your family. You've lost your health. You've lost your looks. You've lost this. You've lost this. Are you ready to get some help now? No, I'm, I'm still, I know, I know people that are sober and haven't hit rock bottom Yeah. because they don't believe in a program. They don't believe in trying to do something different. You know, all they did was abstinence. They're not, they just don't pick up anymore. It's like, yeah, but you still, we drank and used for a reason. You, if you dig down and find that, you're less likely to want to drink again. Yeah. Once you can have acceptance in your life, once you can accept who you were and not, you know, bash who you were. A lot of the times we relapse because we feel bad and guilty for our past. Absolutely. But if you can accept your past as something that was life lessons that taught you things to get you where, like, without my 10 years of addiction, I wouldn't be helping people right now with this. Absolutely. You feel the and same I love way. Same thing. When I surrendered, a lot of times as a you take a life verse, you take a verse and you, and you claim that. It's like, okay, this is me. And Romans 8, 28 is amazing. And you'll agree with this. God said, um, he says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. It's amazing how God can take all of our bad and work it out for good. God can take my addiction, my alcohol, my drug, my immorality. God can take my jail time. God can take my rebellion. God can take all of that and turn it around for good. Wow, amazing. And God does all the time. And so without that testimony, how many people would I have not been able to help? Uh, but because of that, hey, I've been there. Let me help you. And, uh, you know, people do when someone's been there. It's amazing how they'll let them help them where somebody who hasn't been there and just trying to judge them, they don't want to have anything to do with that. Yeah. And you said you mentioned earlier that guy who his background was criminal. Um, I relate to that because when we first opened our meeting center, we were promoting it on Facebook and everything to get the word out locally. And somebody commented saying, what are your qualifications for running something like this? And my I said, my qualifications are 20 years of drinking and 10 years of using. I was like, have you ever been to an AA meeting? The only qualifications in an AA meeting is that you're an alcoholic. And in fact, the only doctors and nurses that are ever in AA meetings, unless they're an alcoholic too, are the people that when we go around the room and introduce ourselves, they say, hey, I'm blah, 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 and I'm a nurse, and I'm here to observe for, for school. They're not there to participate. They're not there to facilitate. We run our show in AA and NA because our only qualification was that we had years of using, and yeah. now we have sobriety time, and we can talk about both. Absolutely. We can make you feel not alone with your the messed up things you did in addiction, yeah. but also give you hope that there is a way out. And it was like we're on the same path because I literally just yesterday, we had our first ever meeting for families with addicts because I wanted to reach a lot of the families in town. You know, yeah. because addicts don't want to come in and they're active addiction, but I want to give families. So I, we had a bunch of, you know, moms come in and sisters and whatever. And we sat around and there was a bunch of us that were also, you know, in recovery and they got to talk to people and feel a little bit of hope like, oh, you made it out. 
you made it out. Like, literally, the one girl was, like, 18 in rehab for the first time, and I'm sitting next to a girl who has four years sobriety, and she's 22. Yeah. And went into rehab at 18 also. So, you know, that was able to give that mom hope. You know, someone's like, oh, should I come if I'm just an addict, though? I'm like, yeah, please. Like, give people hope. Like, come and show that these other parents and these other loved ones that there is a, a way, there is light at the end of the tunnel give them time and without hope without a vision without a belief that they can change it's dead it's over it's done i just literally preached about that on sunday night and i love to help those moms with that because um when i moved out of the house my mom saw me with my suitcase she said what are you doing and my dad wasn't home uh at the time and uh, and i said i'm leaving i'm moving out and she tries to stop me and i don't push her down but i push her out of the way and walk out and um the neighbor lady my mom's best friend was coming to see her and she saw me with a suitcase and she said what are you doing moving out and joking i said yes i am and uh and she's like uh-oh and she went in and she found my mom laying on the stairs just weeping uncontrollably and uh you know i found out that later at the time i didn't know and didn't yeah, care yeah. But but so to talk to those moms and say, listen, this is where my mom was at. This is what I did to her. This is how many years I was in this uh, three years in in rebellion and addiction and all. And so now I've been my parents pastor for 27 years. So so imagine that vision. Imagine your son now <laughs> where yeah. he is and imagine down the road. He's your pastor. We talk about having hope. Okay, I don't want him to go that far, but <laughs> but but. but just to see what God can do and that there is hope and there is a future and uh, they can get pulled out of this. So don't give up. Don't enable them, but don't give up either. Let them know whenever you want to come back, whenever you want to do right, I will love you and help you however I can. Um, but right now, I'm sorry, I can't give you this because I know what you're going to do with it. And I can't do that. Yeah, I got very lucky when I went to my parents. I said, all right, I'm ready for rehab. And they were just relieved that I was coming to them yeah. and saying, all right, I'm done. Like, they'd asked me to go before. I refused. I can do this. I'm fine. And then I say that I'm good and I'm clean. But I'm really not. You know what I mean? I was just hiding it and got, I got better at hiding it. I always got caught whenever I did Xanax because you could just see it on my face that I was hiding wow. Xanax. But you, you could tell less when I was on Percocets. That was easier to hide and mask for me. So whenever I got caught, I would just tone down on the Xanax because my first love and only love was Percocets and <laughs> oxycodone. So like I didn't care about the Xanax as much. They're going to get me caught. I need to keep you around. So and that's what I would do. I would just you know, wait a couple of years. And plus, like I lost people in addiction. Like I was engaged to one of my childhood best friends and she was bipolar, schizophrenic and an alcoholic. Wow. So suicide sucks. And when that happens, you blame yourself. People blame you. And you yeah. spiral. And I spiraled. I got into drinking again. I couldn't get drugs in North Carolina because I, I moved to North Carolina to escape. I moved 30 times in addiction. Wow. Four states. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Bounced around. I was in Massachusetts, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Um, my fifth state was California, but that's where I was sober. So I don't even count that as running. I count that as like running towards a goal, not running away from that's but awesome. when I got to North Carolina, I'm like, I can't get pills, but I can go to the bar. And I was at the bar six, seven nights a week. They had a spot for me and everything. You know, my seat was already reserved every day. <laughs> Tip them good, they take care of you, you know. And yeah. that's where I spent my time for a year. And then I went back to PA. And I was like, oh, I'm close to pills again. Right back into pills again. And it's just, I needed, that was my solution. You know, when I, st when I told you I started drinking at 11, it was for fun. It was my buddy was sleeping over all the time. And we would watch The Outsiders, you know, and we would want to be cool like them and drink. Okay. 
So my first drink was Captain and Coke at 11. And um, cut to 12, somebody I know dies for the first time. You know, he was my age and he got hit by a car, freak accident. So I'm like, I'm in a lot of pain. I'm grieving for the first time. And I'm like, I know what I need to do. I know we'll fix this. I'll, I'll take a drink and it'll make me feel better. So I gave myself a learned behavior of alcohol and, you know, any of those substances are the solution to my problems. And any time for the next 20 years, I was upset, alcohol, happy, alcohol, or pills, eventually, because alcohol stopped working, you know. And that's that's what happened. I mean, it's insanity. I'm glad I can at least, like you said, you took less money to do something you're passionate about. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm basically running this on unemployment money right now, you know, like until we get donations in because I care way more about being here every day for 12 hours and helping. The finances is really, really hard in this and it's amazing, you know, and we're not government, you know, set up, but just we have to raise our own funds for it. And so, um, you know, these books I give away in the jail, they don't have money, so I got to give them away. So I got to raise money to get them printed so I can give them away. If anybody wants one of these, you can go to neverbackhere.com, neverbackhere.com, and you can get one if you know someone that you think that would help with. It's uh, not just jail, it's all the things that bring us to jail, everything that ends up messing us up, which is which is amazing because if I had time, the chapter in there talk about um, uh, what people turn to. Guys realize, okay, alcohol messed me up. All right, drug messed me up. I'm done. Uh, but then they get into relationships that end up bringing them back into all of that. And I said, man, if I had a dime for every time I see a guy back in jail, I was like, what are you doing here? Man, I was doing good. I had a job. I was clean. I wasn't using. What happened? Man, there was this girl, you know, and that brought them back into all of that. And so, you know, to talk about that also, because so many people get clean, but then there's something else that leads them back to that and ends up creating all those problems again. So, so yeah, to raise the money to do that, our men's home, we, um, it's a, a sober living, but it's a work program where okay. um, they work to be able to pay. So many times um, I've seen a lot of guys, their parents pay their rehab and their next rehab and their next rehab and their next rehab and their next rehab, and they never get right because there's no personal responsibility. And so we only charge $115 a week. That's it. That's uh, cheap. We barely pay the bills, but I don't take any money from it. My son, by the way, <laughs> my son, you asked, my oldest son is 30. Uh, I got to hire him. He's the assistant chaplain at the jail and the assistant at the men's home, and we get to work together on this. So, uh, so uh, you like him? His beard is about down to here. And, uh, <laughs> um, the, the sheriff calls him. Yes, this is our Muslim chaplain, and uh, <laughs> with the beard. But anyway, we get to work together on this. We don't take salaries from that. That's just a donation. It's called Onesimus House, which is uh, neat. With that word, people, what is Onesimus House? They ask me, so I get to tell my banker and lawyer and everyone about it. There's a guy in the Bible named Onesimus. He got saved in prison. Paul led him to Christ, and Onesimus is getting out of prison. Paul writes a letter to a guy named Philemon, the book of Philemon in the Bible, and says, hey, help this guy when he gets out. And out of 66 books in the Bible, one whole book is written to help one guy getting out of prison and put his life back together. Well, tell me God doesn't care about people that struggle with things like that. And uh, and every time I tell people that, sober business people are like, that is neat, you know, because so many people don't care about those kinds of people, and we should, and God does. One whole book of the Bible to help one guy get out of prison and put his life back together. So how neat that is. Yeah, I mean, and especially, you know, when you think about it, addicts, we're like some of the most creative people. Oh, brilliant, like, amazing, yeah. incredible. <laughs> 
especially like guys in the jail, what they learn how to do with the little things that they have, you know, people, all the CEOs and uh, staff yeah. say, Man, if they would use their brain um, that they have on things productive, incredible. And, and we've seen that. And that's my goal for the guys. You know, I want to help them with their life, their relationships, their finances, their addictions, um, and then help them. Okay, what does God have for you? I want to start a business. Good. Let's help you, you know, and uh, man, to start a business. And now you can hire the guys I'm trying to help. And now all day long, they don't just have a job, but they've got a mentor. They got a sponsor. They got somebody yeah. to help them when they struggle, who's been there and help them through that. It's a beautiful world when you get help and now you spend whatever your gifts, talents, abilities are helping other people. It's it's a great, great thing. And looking forward to uh, many, many years of that. And finances, things are turning around. But yeah, you're right, man. To fund this thing uh, is a big deal because you got to eat. Uh, I, I jokingly say, my kids like to eat, you know, 11 kids. They like to eat it. We try to feed them at least every other day, you know? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it, 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 it takes that to be able to fund them. And, and uh, anyway, yeah, great stuff, man. I love what you're doing. I uh, love that you're getting this out there and helping people. And, uh, how long you've been, uh, this podcast been going on? We, this is, um, I've had, there's five episodes out as of right now with another awesome. one coming out tomorrow. Um, I, every Wednesday, a new episode comes out, you know, it's audio on Spotify and it's video on YouTube. Awesome. And yeah, I just talked to other addicts about their experience, you know, what and it was like. I was like. You, you do a great job. I'm, I I do a podcast called the Wisdom for Life podcast, and I'm in episode number 12. So, you know, I'm just a little little bit ahead of you, but yeah. uh, you do a great job. I, it seems like you've been doing this for a long time. So, so I, <laughs> No, I just watch a lot of podcasts. I just, I study, <laughs> I, I, my, my studying was always study somebody else that's doing it and not go to school. Like when I wanted to be a writer, Absolutely. I studied my favorite writers and how they wrote, what their background was, what got them into it. And when I got into podcasting, it was, what do my favorite podcasters do? How do they do it? What do they ask? I mean, my favorite interviewer of all time is Howard Stern. He knows yeah. how to interview people. He knows how to shut up and listen. Yeah. You know, and those are important things that you find that I watch podcasts. I'm like, oh, you got to stop talking. You're the host. The, the <laughs> guest is supposed to talk. And so I say these things and I'm like, okay, remember that for later because I like to talk. Yeah. And so, but my job whenever I'm running this show is to let you talk. Yeah. And then Good stuff. You. Man, excited for what you're doing and man, hoping you. pray that you'll be able to help a whole bunch of people because it's a it's a horrible world out there to see so many people and how they're living and what they're into, man, to see the flop house, to see the meth, to see the, I mean, just, you know, guys, two weeks on a binge, no sleep and crazy life. And man, then you look at their body, their, their sores, their teeth. And it's like, man, you're killing yourself. You know, you're putting these chemicals in your body that just is killing yourself. And, you know, and just totally oblivious to it. It's, uh, it's sad. So they need as many, many people out there uh, yeah. trying to help. And it's sad. Um, there's less, quote, and I hate saying this because I am, but there's less Christians and church people many times trying to help these, um, you know, than a guy like you who's coming out of it, who has a heart, man, I want to make a difference. So, so man, I, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate you coming on. Nice talking to you now. Definitely um, check out that book, too. Can you want to show it up, show it up again? Let me see. Yes. I'm never coming back here. You go to neverbackhere.com. Neverbackhere.com. You can get a copy of the book. Um, and also, um, um, if I can help you in any way, let me know. I'll try to link it to my YouTube when I post awesome. it on YouTube and everything like that. This way I can go right to the link. And I'll shoot you a message when it's on my page. It'll either be tomorrow or next Wednesday or the Wednesday after that. i got to okay. edit everything together. I'll have to get it. So, that's I'll show you a message when it's up and running, though. Awesome. Appreciate, I appreciate you talking. Have a good hey, day, buddy. Thanks for being here. God bless you, man. Take care. You too. You too. Bye-bye.